Hello and welcome to Stuff That Matters, a New Hope podcast. Listen to the trailer, you know what we're about. We're so excited to begin this journey speaking with Beth Tyson, a childhood trauma consultant, public speaker, mental health journalist, and a best-selling author. We'd speak to Beth about her background, how she got started dealing with her own personal traumas, engaging with parents and families in their homes, uh, a series that she's involved in, an organization called Connect Our Kids, becoming a mom herself, how that impacted her personal life and herself as a professional. She talks about her best-selling children's book, Male and Female Differences and Their Reaction to Trauma, what she would tell a parent whose child discloses to them that they're experiencing trauma, and more. Beth provided tremendous insight and was incredibly conversational throughout the interview. We hope you enjoy. So without further ado, the inaugural episode on Stuff That Matters, here's Beth Tyson. Right. Stuff that matters. We are joined by Beth Tyson, childhood trauma consultant, public speaker, mental health journalist, and best-selling author. You can find her book, A Grand Family for Sullivan, on Amazon. Beth, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here with all of you. That's a good intro, Beth. That's a lot of things. <laughs> I know, right? Sometimes it's hard to believe. <laughs> oh, that's, that's so awesome. So again, thank you so much for joining us. Like Patrick said, can you just start off by telling us a little bit about your story for folks who might not know? Who, who, who are you other than all those things? Who else are you? Yeah, right. That's the, the formal introduction. Um, the informal introduction is that I am a mom and wife. Um, I am a um, trauma survivor myself. My parents divorced when I was two and we lived at long distances from each other. And, um, on top of that, my mother passed away when I was 26 years old. She, she passed away suddenly. And that experience was, um, like a real up close kind of, uh, real life experience with PTSD for me. And, um, I, got the help that I needed and I went through treatment and I thought, oh my gosh, everybody needs to have this sort of help in their lives when they go through something devastating like I went through. And so I left my corporate job and decided to go back to get my master's degree in clinical counseling when I was in my early thirties. And um, I worked part-time at I worked full-time and went to school part-time at night. That was when everything was still in person and you, I had to go to class, actual class every day, every week. <laughs> I know, right? And um, and so I really just did everything I could to learn ev everything about clinical counseling. And during that time, there was a trauma track. There was um, a specialization in trauma that I could choose amongst other tracks. And I chose that track. And at the time, um, my professor and like my mentor said, if you go into trauma work, you'll always have a job. And I thought to myself, huh, really? I don't think that many people have trauma. Like back then, that's what I was thinking. I was like, really? I'm, that surprised me. And, um, and now I realize that, you know, we're all living with some type of trauma, most likely. Um, if you're alive, you probably have some some trauma in your background. So um, I took everything I learned from there. And my first job out of grad school was working as a foster kinship and adoptive therapist in people's homes. And I was 
tasked with the job of trying to keep those families together. They were about to disrupt for one reason or another. They were about to have a child removed from the home and placed elsewhere because of the behaviors, because of the, um, you know, the trouble that they were all facing. And I had a lot of success in that role because what I did was teach the parents. I spent most of my time with the parents, even though I was really supposed to be there for the child. I spent most of the time with the foster parents, the kinship parents, and the adoptive parents, helping them understand trauma, the behaviors that the children were exhibiting, and how they were connected to that um, that trauma, that early childhood trauma. And then um, once we did that, they were able to parent in a different way. They had that trauma lens where they could parent from a different perspective and understand and have compassion for the children's behaviors where before they were just like, what is this kid doing? And they were angry and resentful. And they thought, why am I doing this? I'm, I'm, you know, I'm falling apart. They're falling apart. They hate me, you know, whatever it might be. And once they understood that all the problems they were having were stemming from this pain and this hurt, then they could look at it differently and say, oh, okay, I, I'm, I'm not angry anymore. I now understand where these behaviors are coming from and I have some tools and some skills to, to implement. And so um, I loved that work because I saw so much progress, right? Where, <laughs> where uh, you know, it was 2014, 2013, and nobody was really talking about trauma back then. And so, um, you know, the parents were just so desperate for help and the children as well. And, um, and so what I also found was that my grief, my experience with grief and my own reaction to that, uh, losing my mom helped me connect with the children and helped me to understand some of the pain from their perspective, um, you know, being in a foster home or being adopted that, that profound loss that occurs, um, when you're disconnected from your biological family. And even though it was for different reasons, um, and it's not exactly the same, I was able to relate to them. And I think they were able to feel and sort of relate to, to some of the things that I had been through. So that's the informal <laughs> introduction. Wow. Awesome. What, so you jumped from corporate into the mental health space. Were people in your life at that time saying, what the heck are you thinking? <laughs> what are you talking about? Well, that yeah, you know, I had been out of college for, what, almost 10 years when I went back to grad school. And huh. yeah, I mean, there were people in my life who were like, what are you doing? You're not going to make any money. You know, this is a pipe dream. Like you're, what are you thinking? Blah, blah, blah. You know, you already have yourself established. But um, my mother's death helped me put life in, into perspective really fast. And I feel that that was a blessing for me and was part of my post-traumatic growth because I was able to realize, hey, life can be really cut short. And if you, I spend it toiling away at this corporate job, that means pretty much nothing to me. I'm going to look back and regret it one day. And so I wanted to that really motivated me. <clears throat> My mother's passing away early um, motivated me to sort of take life um, by the <laughs> by the handles and and say, "Hey, I'm I'm going to do something different with my life." And this is what really meant something to me. This is my purpose and my calling. That that's incredible, um, and thank you for sharing that. Um, 
one of the things that I wanted to just touch base with you on is there's a couple things you mentioned in your story that you talked about, like working in a home setting, right? And working with foster care parents and kinship placement um, type settings. Can you talk a little bit about that setting and, and actually going into somebody's home? And I think in the world of behavioral health or mental health care for kids, um, I can speak to like my my friends and family members who aren't in this space, never really understand what it is that's being done or how it's being addressed. They just know I work for some agency that works with kids and families and really don't have a clear picture of how, how it works. So I'd love to hear yeah. a little bit more about the in-home model and, and what that looks like and, and the difficulties there. I'm sure it's not easy. Yeah. So I think it's, there's two sides to every coin, right? So there's tremendous benefits of being in home um, with families because you're able to see things play out in real time and in real circumstances. You're not hearing third party secondhand stories. You're actually seeing the dynamics of the family. And, you know, in therapy, like everything kind of has meaning to the where, um, where somebody sits down, like who sits next to each other, um, you know, what's going on in the background, what pictures are on the wall. Like you can learn so much about a family just from being inside their home. It's kind of like a, a window, right? Into what's meaningful and purposeful to them. And so the benefits of being in home is that you can, um, A, it's convenient for the families, right? Like a lot of people who don't want to go to therapy or or didn't want me there because quite frankly I was not a choice they had they had to see me right. and they were often um uh angry that I was coming into the home or resistant I would say not maybe not angry but resistant and frustrated because um they had all kinds of people coming into their homes right they have social worker visits and they have this you know this service and that service provider coming. And so there's already a lot of eyeballs in their home, which can feel very intrusive. And so I was another set of eyeballs coming into the home. And now I'm some expert who's a psychologist, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, what are they going to think of me? So there was a lot of resistance where in the beginning where people would put off um, meeting with me or they would oh, no, I, I can't meet that week. I can't meet this week. And they would, we're too busy. We have this, we have that. But ultimately, they did have to meet with me. And um, and so what I had to be was really um, humble and understand that I was not there to fix their family. I was there to um, help learn about their family because they are the experts on their own family. And um, I was there to learn, but also to guide them through with the skills and the tools that they already had and, you know, help provide that support and that holding environment. Um, but if I tried to come in and just act as though I knew everything and say, oh, do this, do that, you know, people would not have responded very well to that. So I had to really work at building trust with those families, especially because even though I was in my 30s, I looked younger than than most. And, um, at that time. And so I also didn't have children at that time. And right. that would always be a question that people would say, well, do you have any, do you have any kids? Right. And I'd be like, Oh, it's such a, <laughs> and I'd be like, no, but I'm very well trained and I have my master's in clinical counseling, you know, so I would have to, I had a lot of resistance coming into the game that I had to, 
to really work at building that trust and that relationship. And that's what therapy is all about. If you don't have trust with your practitioner, if you don't feel comfortable, if you don't feel as though this person um, really understands you and is there for your best interest, then the therapy won't be successful anyway. So luckily I had that knowledge to go in with the first thing was building trust. And that meant a lot of times just listening. Oh, fantastic. Um, yeah, my, my first couple of years in the field was doing in-home work. And and to your point, you can see so much uh, in somebody's home that you can't see in an office. I remember working with a family that I think it was a DJJ, DSS. And uh, like to your point, they had 20 different stakeholders in their life, which just has to be exhausting. Like I hate when the spectrum guy comes to my house, let alone if people were actually coming and sitting down for five hours talking about my family. So I always... yeah applaud these families that that let us in the door at all but i remember working with a family that was kind of perpetually late and i remember going to a couple meetings about that family before actually meeting them and everybody just was kind of not being very trauma informed about that family and kind of ragging on them as like the parents not really caring being disorganized not being super engaged in iep meetings and all this stuff my first observation when i went to their home was i looked around at like there wasn't a single clock in their trailer that was correct that was set correct and none of them had probably been like the batteries had not been replaced on any of their like time mechanisms in their house ever because i just don't think that was the biggest priority for them because they were just through and trying to get by so i think the first session i was like you guys want to take a drive over to walmart and get some of these clocks (laughs) reset and just you know just getting getting kind of the context of what families are Going through to Mike's point, I think a lot of folks don't have any concept um, of the challenges and the struggles that some of our kids and families are going through out there. Yeah, I I can't echo that more strongly. That it's it's not um, that the the anger resistance isn't because they don't care, but that they have so many pressures on them already, and so right. many meeting schedules, and so many. Do- doctor's appointments they have to go to like they're stretched so thin and then it's like what you want another person to come here an hour a week like I don't I I can't make up time (laughs) like where am I supposed to pull this time from so they they really are just stretched so thin and then I I think to that point the being stretched thin whether it's family members that that are receiving the service or if it's providers providing the service and one of the things in my years and working with kids and families that I've noticed is time has become, you know, this is going to sound like the old guy talking, time's become shorter. Uh, my first kind of toe in the water with working with kids and families was in a wilderness program for juvenile justice involved kids. And all those kids, I look back on it now, and all those kids had some level of trauma that they've, they had experienced, but we weren't a trauma informed model, but what we, what we were, what we were was a program that time was not a factor, right? We had time to build a trusting relationship. We had time to build good rapport with those kids. We had time to really kind of um, establish ourselves as an organization that really, really, really wanted a great outcome for that child and their family. And although we didn't know what we didn't know back then, that time was helpful in, in our pursuit to have good outcomes. And so where I stand today, where I, you know, I think about today, it doesn't feel like, and maybe I'm wrong here, it doesn't feel like there's a lot of time sometimes with kids who have extensive trauma histories or families that do um, 
Can you speak to that a little bit? Is that something that from your seat and from your experience, you can talk a little bit about? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, all of us, whether we have, you know, whether we're raising children with extensive trauma or just the everyday family, like it seems like there's never enough time for all the things. And so um, I think that it is a, it isn't helpful to have so many services in place. It becomes almost like a detriment to Mm -hmm. the family system. And so um, like, I felt like in my role, I was hitting so many different things. I was kind of, you know, I was, I was one part advocate for the family. I was one part, um, you know, communicating back to the social worker. So I was also, you know, eyes and ears for the social worker to to know what decisions to make next, sort of like advising the social worker on like, hey, you know, this, this is something that might be helpful for them. This is something that the child needs and kind of being that go between, between both. And, um, and, because oftentimes the social workers don't have time, right? They come and spend 15 minutes and then they're on to the next family. And it's not, again, because they don't care. It's because they have a caseload of 25 families they need to see that week or whatever it is. And um, and so they stop in for 15 minutes and they look they look around, they make sure the kid's safe and, you know, doing well enough. And then they move on. And, um, and so I think having a therapist in the home is so critical. Like my role was so impactful because I was connected to all the other pieces. I was connected to their CASA worker. If they had one, I was connected to the social workers. I was connected to their teachers. I would go to IEP meetings. You know, I was sort of the person that was in all of it. And, um, and so it wasn't so piecemeal and like, it wasn't like 50 different people doing the job, um, doing different jobs, I should say, which was saving time for the family. Um, but yeah, I think that is a huge barrier for people getting help. Um, and being in home is saves time too. I think that in home model saves the time of like traveling back and forth and it's coming to you. So, you know, it's like more, more, um, convenient and time sensitive. Yeah. And I think to your point, but I mean, I think sometimes we get wrapped up in wanting to do something when sometimes just like just being there and just, and that's kind of what you're talking about, Mike, is like, you weren't, you weren't thinking about your time in terms of like billable hours or reimbursement. You were just like, let me get to know this kid. Like let them get to know me. You know that they come in already thinking this Mike O'Connor is full of absolute you know what? I, and, and so you're going to have to take some time to overcome that. I think, um, yeah, I do think sometimes our system presses us to start getting into fix it mode when we haven't developed any credibility with these families to even earn the right to to do that. So, um, yeah, I agree. But, you know, that's something that's coming to my mind. You know, so you're obviously you're somebody who has been a, a healer and a helper that kind of came from a place of real calling from your own pain and loss and experience. And so, and I don't think that's uncommon, obviously in our, in our space, not everybody who's a healer was wounded, but to your point, I think, especially with kids, there's gotta be some kind of like authenticity that they sense that this person relates to me as a human being and is not just spouting book knowledge. Um, Like, so in in your career and you're working with families, how did you, draw lines between your stuff, their stuff. I'm sure there were some cases that touched really, really close to home that were tough, which I don't think is always a bad thing. Like, I think it's good to be moved by our 
kids and by our families. It's a it's, this is profoundly powerful and emotional work. But obviously, there is some kind of yeah. line that we have to draw. So, can you just talk to that a little bit? Yeah. So um, you're right. Like certain cases, in certain situations, and certain relationships that I built with the with the children and the families, you know, I wanted to hang out with them. <laughs> I wanted to be their friends, you know, and like stay in touch with them after we were done with our ten sessions or whatever it was or our three months, I forget what we had a time frame that we, you know, we had to fit within. And then if we didn't, if they didn't um, close out after 10 sessions, you could get an extension, but you know, it was, you had to be approved. And then after that, you almost never got an extension. So I would really miss the families and, and I would feel really close and attached with them. Um, but that ethical boundary, you have to keep that in place um, because of the, um, because I was always very sensitive of like, I know so much personal information about this family and this person that it wouldn't be fair for me to cross in, over into some other type of, you know, long-term relationship with them. Um, and so, yeah, I had to like keep it to, you know, just maintaining those weekly visits. And, um, and one of the things that I would do to kind of disconnect from my own personal life, like the trauma that would get activated in me, like at night, a lot of times before bed, I would have trouble going to sleep because I was thinking about all the different children and the different issues. So I learned a visualization technique that worked for me, which was to kind of take all of it, all the things I was thinking about, all of the, all the children, all the families I was worried about. And I would put them in my mind in like a beautiful box and kind of picture myself placing it up on a shelf I couldn't reach, you know, and say, you know, it's there for the night while I'm sleeping. It's in my, you know, it was in my room in my mind. It's there, it's close to me, but it's, it's closed for the night and I need to get rest so that I can be good at my job tomorrow. And that visualization process I had to do pretty frequently. And, um, and then of course there were times when it just did spill over into my life, right. Where I, I found myself sobbing in my car, you know, after leaving a session and, um, and it it it's impossible, I think, as as a therapist, as as a healer, as somebody who's been through their own trauma to fully, you know, separate those those two things. I think it is a, a gray area that meshes over into each other. Um, but I learned so much from those experiences and those relationships. And I often would tell people like I I'm learning and growing so much just from listening to you Um you know, it's, it's there as a therapist, it's a two, it really is a two way street. Like I was gaining so much from hearing their stories and their struggles as, as they were probably gaining from me as, you know, the quote unquote expert who was there to give them help. <laughs> right. So, um, yeah. Yeah. That's all. And, and I think people, um, yeah, I think sometimes there's this feeling that we have to be kind of cold detached. And I think that's a very old school mentality that's still somewhat permeates now and obviously yeah. boundaries are important but yeah being um being vulnerable and being emotionally moved by the people you're working with i think why why else are we doing it? I, I might as well just work in the corporate world like I, I want to be moved i want to engage with this is really to the point of our podcast title this is really stuff that is super important and matters so if you don't every now and then go to your car and um shed a tear about this work i don't i don't know you got to get your pulse checked a little bit i think that's okay um, yeah. As long as you're spilling out, as long as you're making sure that, you know, you're still making sure that there's a 
that you're working on their stuff, you right. know, and that you're propelling them forward. But um, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. Your stuff could be touched and moved while you're working on their stuff. It just happens. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And there were definitely times I teared up with clients. You know, I wasn't, you know, bawling my eyes out, but, you know, right. I did at oh, times, yeah. you know, you these this is hard, hard stuff. And these are really heartbreaking situations. And so, yeah, if you if you're breathing, you're probably going to have some tears at yeah. times. Yeah. And I that authenticity and transparency is so powerful for people. If I just sat there with like a stone cold face, like how, how could right. anybody feel comfortable or safe with me? So I think it is finding a balance where you're not, you know, unloading your emotions onto them. Cause that's the last thing they need, but you're yeah. also able to be um, real and, and transparent about how you're feeling in the moment. I love your point about the visualization exercise that you you've you've created for yourself, I guess. And one of the things that I think needs to be, you know, and speaking for New Hope, I mean, we have a lot of staff who work with kids, you know, who obviously have trauma and they're with us for a reason. And I think sometimes, you know, I'll just say, you know, our organization, sometimes I think we forget about if you're not taking care of the caregiver then the kids and or the the client doesn't always get the best treatment and care that maybe they deserve so it's always a good reminder that little technique that you have i mean i'm going to probably implement that for myself and my team we handle all the referrals to new hope so we read a lot of trauma histories you know 15 20 of these things a day and you walk away from that after 9 10 hours and I think sometimes you forget what what that toll is on you as the professional. And so I, I guess what I'm saying is thank you for that. That's a really good strategy that I'm going to share with my team right out of the gate. Oh, I love that. I'm so glad. Um, yeah, I, I kind of created it back then on my own. Like, I don't know what it was sort of like just an idea I had. And then it's stuck. And I, I still do that sometimes. Um, so I think that could be really helpful to your folks. And I do training. I have provided training to, um, other, uh, CASA advocates and, and different people that work in the child welfare space on vicarious trauma or secondary trauma, which is what you're talking about. Um, mm -hmm. and that was something I also experienced and I didn't even realize that I was experiencing it. I didn't know that there was even a word for it. Um, but I, at one point, um, was working with a woman who had, done some awful things, uh, to a child and I, I lost it, <laughs> you know, like I couldn't handle it because I was a mom myself and just being in close relationship with her, um, you know, it, it, it brought up all of this, um, vicarious trauma in me. And, mm. uh, had I not known to research it and look into it, and help myself sort of make sense of some of the things I was feeling. It was almost like I was feeling what she was feeling, you know, as I was having fears that were her fears, you know, this, like this, this, um, transmission almost of, of thoughts and feelings, um, from being in close contact with somebody is possible. And, um, and when I realized that I was able to stop blaming myself for like, 
wait a minute, I'm supposed to have it together. I'm supposed to be able to handle these situations. You know, I was blaming myself, but when I realized, no, this is what happens when you're in close contact with somebody who is really setting off your nervous system. Um, it's a natural reaction and there's nothing, you know, wrong with you for, for feeling that. Um, I think when we build more awareness about that for our professionals, it's, it's a game changer. Um, and, and it prevents burnout, you know, Absolutely. And that's obviously a key for the world that we're in. Uh, Employee turnover and and burnout is real and uh, having, having techniques or strategies like that, always great. So tell us before we go there, maybe just tell us a little bit about Connect Our Kids, if you can. Yeah. Oh, incredible organization. Um, I, they found me actually through LinkedIn of all places. I think that's where we also met, right? And, um, and so a couple of years ago, it was during the pandemic early on, uh, it must've been, you know, mid 2020 at some point, Jessica Stern, who is the, um, who is one of the co-founders of connect our kids reached out to me and we had like a little exploratory call to see, you know, what, you know, what we might collaborate on. Um, she loved my children's book, a grand family for Sullivan and just, fell in love with that whole idea of, um, you know, helping children who are in kinship families really understand uh, why they are in their placements and in their, their grandparents' homes or their relatives' homes, Mm -hmm. and then providing those skills and some tips and strategies for coping with it. And she was like, I have, we have to do something together, but she's like, I'm building out this, um, this connect Connections Matter Academy, it was called at the time, but she didn't know what it would be called. But she's like, I want to build this video series for to help children and teens and young adults understand childhood trauma. She's like, if I had found this out when I was in my 20s, instead of when I was in my 40s, I could have like avoided so many issues and so much self-blame and so much um, anxiety and and could have jump-started my healing earlier in life. And so she felt really passionately about reaching children who are aging out of the foster care system without any families, um, because it's also what Connect Our Kids does is they help, they have a technology platform that connects people who are um, in the foster care system or in the homeless community to people that are in their extended family trees in their extended communities and jessica's partner and co-founder um jennifer jacobs was created this technology because she's like a brilliant scientist who worked in the military and was fettering out um, terrorist networks within our government, within around the world. It was her job to to sort of find out how these people were connected and where there might be a terrorist cell around the world wow. and alert. <laughs> yeah. And, <laughs> and she thought to herself, if the department of defense has this technology, why can't we do the same thing for children in foster care? Like Love why that. are children? Yeah. She's like, it's just, it just doesn't, it just makes sense. Like they, we should also be doing this. Why aren't, why are children not knowing where their family are, where their people are? Um, so she's created this, the tech part of it. Um, and basically what it does is it finds not only extended family members or like builds out a f- extended family tree, but it also finds people from their community from the past. Like, so say you're 18 oh. and you're about to age out of the system 
and you were really connected with a neighbor, you know, 10 years ago who loved you and babysat you every day after school and was very connected to you, but you suddenly got removed and sent to the next foster home and you completely lost touch with that neighbor, right? This person who was really special to you. Well, this technology can find even those type of connections for children and help rebuild those relationships so that they have a lifelong person in their life that's willing to say, um, I'll step up for you. I'll call you every year on your birthday. I'll, you know, maybe I'll even take you into my home. It might, it might not be that, but just having like a long-term relationship with somebody who knows you as, as a young person is is so powerful. So yeah, Amazing. they're doing lots of great. Yeah. yeah. So there's the two areas I've worked on are with them are, um, currently, uh, rolling out a training in the state of Mississippi for all their child welfare professionals on why connections matter and helping them understand the psychology under, under the purpose of family search and engagement. So like social workers are mandated to search, right. For, um, extended family members and, and make sure that they've, they've sort of crossed all their I's and, or crossed all their T's and dotted all the I's. But the, the, the reality is it's a very arcane system right. that doesn't work very well. And mm-hmm. people are so bogged down by other stuff that they don't have time to do really diligent search. And so connect our kids makes it easy and fast for social workers to do that searching. Um, and it's a, it's a secure system with all the bells and whistles and it's, it's really cool. So I encourage you to check out, check out wow. connectourkids.org. That's They're awesome. Doing really good. Such a, what a fascinating kind of origin story of where that right. came from Ugh. technology. But yeah, I've never met a kid in the foster care system who did not want to reconnect with their biological people or their people, as you said, it didn't even have to be biological, but some doesn't matter what that person did. Doesn't matter if that person even was their direct, sometimes kind of traumatizer, you know, somebody who led to a traumatic childhood. It's like, hey, I'm going to reconnect with this person. The second I get out of this system, <laughs> I'm going to reconnect with that person. And I'm pretty sure, again, I'm not not always fantastic on the, on the research and data of it all, but I, I think kids in child welfare, you can draw kind of straight lines to their successful outcomes based on how many non-paid people they have in their lives. A lot of these kids have a bunch of paid people in their lives, but like how many non-paid people, you know, you got, you got a neighbor, you got an uncle, you got a family friend, like that actually starts stacking up wins for these kids. And sometimes we think, man, this kid's got a bunch of people in their life, but you look, it's like, well, five of those people are paid by insurance companies Four of them, their authorization runs out in six months. Those aren't people like that's not, not forever people, you know? So, ah, what a sweet, what a sweet organization and story that is. Yeah. They're doing incredible stuff. Definitely. Um, yeah, I agree with you. I've had the same example, the same situation. In fact, like if you build out one of the activities we do in this training um, on why connections matter is like, okay, um, you know, who, who, who's in your circle, right? And try and build out like a support circle for the child. And what you find, what, what the people we're training will find is that, yeah, they're all temporary, a foster parent, right. temporary, you know, a social worker, temporary, their therapist, temporary. These these people are not long-term relationships. And without long-term relationships, like how is anybody going to succeed? Like it just doesn't even make sense. Beth, 
you mentioned earlier in your career um, when you were in home speaking to families, they'd ask you, you know, if you had children of your own. You are a mother now, and yeah. Matt and Mike, as parents, you can feel free to weigh in on this too. Uh, but you know, bringing children into this world, how did that reaffirm your passion for the work that you do, and how much did that impact, um, you know, what, what you did after? Yeah, great question. Um, very significantly impacted my life. Um, I got the real life experience of being a mom who a new mom who had experienced trauma in the hospital, right? Birth trauma that most women go through that we completely ignore, um, that we don't acknowledge in any of our policies or systems that a lot of times, um, I mean, I've yet to hear a pregnancy or a birth story from a mom that doesn't include some kind of trauma. I -hmm. mean, it's like this happened and then that happened and then preeclampsia. And then I had to go back to the hospital and then, you know, the baby would, you know, like everything. And so my, my situation was just like a lot of moms where, um, my child had to spend five days in the NICU because she wasn't breathing properly. And I was an absolute mess and a disaster. And, um, and that, and that sort of carried over into, and had an emergency C-section before that. And so what happened was, I was having a, you know, I was having a trauma response from all of that and trying to be a new mom to a baby who was also experiencing a traumatic event who, you know, cried constantly and did not, um, did not want to feed properly and, you know, all the different issues and nobody was acknowledging, you know, that trauma to me, nobody was checking on, on it to say, are you having any symptoms of trauma when I would go to like the you know, my, my visits for the baby and everything every couple of days or weeks. And, um, and I just thought after I got out of that cloud, cause when you're in it, you don't even kind of realize it, but then looking back, you know, I had postpartum anxiety and, and all the things and looking back, I was like, well, no, excuse my language, but no bleep. I had some anxiety, you know, like, right. <laughs> I mean, look what we all just went through, you know, and my husband too, you know, it's like, we just sort of glaze over that whole thing. Like, oh, right. this is normal. No, post, this post is- Post pictures this. on Instagram. Come on, let's go. Right. It's like, yeah. yeah. It's like, oh, motherhood. So blah, blah, blah. Yeah. No, it was awful. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It was terrible for us. And um, and so you're then trying to keep a child alive on top of it, which is something you've never done. So I got a real close up example of like, wow, this is how it happens. This is how it happens. If I did not have a supportive husband and a family to be there for me, to give me breaks, to watch my child, if I did not have money to access therapy or care, if I had to worry about where I was going to get my next formula or my next diaper from, how how can you possibly expect a mother to keep it together? And Mm -hmm their mental health goes down the tubes. They blame themselves. They don't get, they don't get the help they need. A lot of times don't have access to any type of help. And then what happens? I mean, it's a slippery slope into losing your child. If you don't have any of those supports around you, I did. And I still struggled immensely as a new mom. And, um, and so that experience just, helped me have such empathy. I think before that I was like, how could anyone ever give up their child? How could anyone ever 
you know, how could, how could you allow your child to end up in foster care? How, how, how that I just don't understand. I would research it. I would Google it. Why do women abandon their children? Or, you know what I mean? Like back then that was the wrong language, but you know, 10, 15 years ago, like that was my layman's, you know, thought on it. I'm like, how, I don't understand. And now I understand, I understand how it happens, how it's not a choice, how it is a snowball effect of things that can just roll out of control really, really fast. And then if you turn to, if, because you don't have support, you turn to drugs and alcohol to cope. And then soon after that, you know, something, something goes wrong. Yeah. Um, Kind of flips flips that perspective on it. I I sometimes am, I'm amazed it doesn't happen more often. I'm amazed that, that some of the, the youth and families that we work with aren't in rougher shape. I feel like they're totally entitled to be in way rougher shape than they actually right. are or to have thrown in the towel years ago. Like, again, for me, it, it moves me to the point where it's just like, I'm, a, I'm amazed you guys are still in the fight because, yeah, to your point, but I mean, the, um, the privilege and blessings I've had yet still having gone through my own stuff and having times where it's like, I don't, I don't think I want to keep doing all that. It's just, it's profound how resilient some of these folks are, and I think that word gets thrown around so much that it kind of um, is a little cringy sometimes, but I don't think there's a better word for it. I think they just, they stick it out. They stay in the fight. Um, I think it's just truly incredible, but th- thanks for sharing that part of your story. Yeah. And highlighting again, I think it's, um, there are a lot of times like that where I think the you know society is like, this has got to be all celebratory and all high fives and Facebook pictures. And it's like, no, this is kind of a this show behind those doors and we're, we're hanging on for dear life and our family's hanging on for dear life. And that's not what everybody gets to see, but um, it is probably more universal than what we talk about. I love that added that perspective. And I like Matt, you throwing in, I like you throwing in the, the social media aspect of, of our lives today, you know, where we are as a society. It's, it's not the story that is, that's not reality. And the resiliency piece is something that I, even though that word's thrown a lot around a lot, I agree with you, Matt. I think it's the perfect word for some of the, the, for a lot of the kids that we serve and treat. Sometimes we read their information coming in the door, and I scratch my head and wonder how, how they're still walking the planet, you know, after what they've endured. Um, and I think sometimes you don't know what you don't know in terms of, you know, what other people are experiencing. And your perception is not always reality. It just isn't. Um, so, Patrick, that was a good question, buddy. You got us going down a nice path. <laughs> so, so, Beth, I, I, I kind of want to get your take or get your opinion on on something I've said. To your point, I think maybe ten years ago is when we. I, I was when I felt everybody started talking about trauma, and obviously, you know, I think we. There, you can make an argument that there's way more education that needs to be out there, but at least kind of in the space and the, in the mental health bubble, in the child mental health bubble, it started to be talked about all the, all the time. Um, I'm curious your take on this. So I, I did some, a lot of in-home work and I did a lot of in-home work with kids that were court involved in juvenile justice in um, mid you know, 2010s or something. And right around then it seemed to be when like the child judges started to get a hold of the word trauma. Oh boy. And every every two seconds there was something. Every everybody needed a trauma evaluation, and I think a lot of things in our systems, it's got the right intention, but sometimes like the pendulum swing so far. And I what I experienced, and, and again I could be 
completely wrong on this. So you can like completely slap me around if my perspective is <laughs> off. It probably is. It's just, I remember thinking a few times and I, I, these were in-home families. These are families like I, I felt like I had joined with them. I cared deeply about their future. I wanted these young people to succeed, but um, and maybe most of these were young men at the time. They needed a little bit of accountability for some of their actions, for some of their choices. Um, and I felt like we needed a balance between we need to treat what's happening that's leading up to those actions, but the actual actions have to have some level of consequence. And I remember the the juvenile court system at the time just never worked like that. And, and it got to the point, it, it became, in their estimation, so trauma-informed that a kid could do anything illegally or criminally and never face any kind of consequence, which... What I saw that what I, I saw as a result of that is the kids just thought the whole system was a joke. And then I'm terrified that, OK, well, at some point, the system becomes not a joke. At some point, like if you're 19, it's really not going to be a joke and your life might be over. So I was trying to I sometimes felt weird as the mental health guy and as the trauma guy in the room also saying, hey, can we have some of these other systems come in and provide some boundaries and some limits? Because trauma informed, I don't think, means just do whatever you want because we're so empathetic to your child. So I don't know. Does that make sense? What I'm saying? I'm curious yeah. what your take is on that. I, I agree whole, wholeheartedly. Um, I think being trauma informed kind of has gotten equated to like being too soft or gentle on, on people. And it means that you just can do whatever and there's no rules and there's no consequences. And, and I don't believe that. I think that um, we need, structure. We need rules. We need consequences in order for children to feel safe. And if that the goal, right, if you're being trauma informed, a couple, there's a couple different goals, but one of them is the first two for me are safety and trust. Like you need to help them reestablish safety and you need to reestablish the trust because those are the two things that have been taken from them. Right. Um, And so those that structure and that those consequences, those things build trust. It's like if I do this, I can trust that this is going to happen. You know, and and predictable, right? It becomes predictable. They need guidance. They need guardrails, like to hold on to. Young people don't have the front of their brain fully developed yet. The prefrontal cortex isn't fully developed until you're in your late twenties. Um, and so we have to be their prefrontal cortex, like they're outside, <laughs> you know, like by, by yeah. association, or whatever the, in tandem, um, you know, the adults in the room have to be the prefrontal cortex for them so that they, until theirs is fully developed and they're not, they're not operating with a, you know, with the best logic all the time, especially if they've experienced trauma. And so those consequences and those, that structure and those those rules and routines help children feel safe because they can predict what's going to happen next. And okay. Yeah. If I do this, I'm, I'm getting this consequence, you know, and, and that has to be consistent or else they're going to keep pushing the line, right? It's going to keep, Oh, if I do this, then this might happen. Oh, well, let's see if I do this. Will this happen? You know, and it becomes very, um, uh, wishy-washy, then what happens is that actually erodes their sense of safety and trust because now nothing is predictable. Nothing is making sense. There, there is no consequences. And so, um, 
we're not being trauma-informed when we take away consequences, in my opinion, because you're taking away safety and trust when you don't have those guardrails. Yeah, kids kids push boundaries to find them. And if they never find right. them, that's a bad, yeah. bad thing. And, I, you know, just yeah. you know, your point around us all being parents, like when we send our kids to time out, we're not taking pleasure in it most of the time. Sometimes it's like, all right, go. But like most of the time, we're not taking pleasure in it. And we're not usually doing it like to be an a-hole. We're doing it because... I love you. I want to teach you something. I want to teach you where the lines are because I got to teach you that in the house because someday those lines are going to be somebody else's lines and and it's you know it's going to inform you. So yeah, I, I, I saw that trend up front and it was very interesting. It's a very hard conversation though, I think, to have or it's, there's a lot of nuance in there. And I think just with broad conversations, we suck at nuance sometimes. But yeah, it's like, well, sometimes their consequences need to happen. But we're not locking kids away and throwing away the key and we're not doing it. We're not giving them punishments. Again, we're not taking pleasure in a punishment or pleasure in a consequence, but um, yeah, that trauma, like the trauma informed equated to just softness really um, isn't doing us favors ever, all the time. It's not always helpful in a lot of these systems because a lot of people reject it. You know, DJJ will just reject it. A lot of, Social workers are rejected. A lot of parents, you know, depending on where you are in the country, if they're like, don't come at me with that trauma stuff, because that just means you're never going to let me consequence my kid. And so you just have to, we have to, I find we have to unpack a lot of what that actually means because of the kind of the misconceptions about it. Yeah. And I think it's, it's finding a balance, right? It can't, it can't be all punishment. It can't be all, you know, a free for all. You have to find somewhere in there a balance. And like, of course, our criminal justice system has been very heavy on sort of destroying people's lives, really, because, you know, you go into the prison system and then um, there aren't a lot of uh, healing opportunities in there. And then you put people who are still experiencing trauma from their time in prison out into the public with no resources, with a record, with all all these things. And then you expect them to, what, do something really inspiring, yeah. <laughs> you know, like with, you know, you, you've stacked the cards so high against them. And so for me, trauma informed is like, let's take the, the stack of cards down, you know, a little lower, give people a chance to heal, give people a chance to, to get um, through some of their trauma, offer some of that therapeutic um, support within the criminal justice system, um, while also maintaining, you know, some structure, boundaries, consequences, and I think it has to be in a middle place somewhere. I'm really interested to, to hear a little bit about your book, um, A Grand yeah. Family for Sullivan, if I'm saying that correctly. I see it over your shoulder there. I think, I think I'd think yeah. i love to hear a little bit about that. So expertly uh, placed uh, in the corner on display. Yeah, for, for right? <laughs> Kids are obsessed with the Sing movie. So my yes, actually, he's inspired. He was inspired he? by yes, by Mr. Moon. Mr. Moon? Um, I'm gonna we sell it to them like that. This is about Mr. Yep. Moon's origin story. Yeah, we were. I was inspired. We were actually watching that movie a lot when I was. Um, I love that. When I was writing the the book, and so I was like, oh, I want to make him a koala. It's so cute. <laughs> um, 
So, yeah. So this book was was created out of a need that I saw um, as a therapist with children in the child welfare system. About half of my caseload were kinship families, which means grandparents raising grandchildren, sometimes other relatives like aunts and uncles or, you know, cousins. And I would go to our we had this closet where we could go Um in our office that had books, just shelves of books and resources and games. And like, you would go to that closet to take something to the next home that you were going to visit if you needed some sort of tool or resource. And on those bookshelves were lots and lots of children's books about foster care and about adoption, but there were no books about grandfamilies or kinship families. And Mm. me and my colleagues would complain about it. We'd be like, you know, we'd talk about it at a meeting and said like, ah, one day I'm going to write that book, right? There's just none out there. I've looked on Amazon. I've looked online. I can't, I've gone to the library. I can't find any books for children being raised by their grandparents. And so um, in 2019, I was still at home with my daughter and, you know, wanting to get back to work, but not sure, not sure how or what capacity, or, and I wasn't ready to go back full time or even part time at that point. And I said, you know, I have that idea for that book. Maybe, maybe I could do it. You know, maybe I could learn how to publish a book. So I started learning everything I could about how to publish a book and how to write a story. And I took some classes, etc., and um, came up with this story about Sullivan. And basically, it's a tool. It's it has a lot of different purposes, but the main purpose is to help children in this situation. A, answer the question, why am I living with my grandparents? Because I used to have to be the one to tell them. Mm. And sometimes these people had been on waiting lists for six months, a year before I got there. Nobody was telling the child why they are in care. And they have no idea what is going on really a lot of times the children and i just thought to myself how can any child behave properly or even start the healing process when they don't even know what's happened to them or why they had to leave home or you know and that those conversations weren't left out from a place of wanting to to harm or or to be negligent to the child but out of a fear of talking about it of of saying you know, your parents couldn't keep you safe and we have to put you somewhere where you're safe. It's our job to keep you safe. And it was, they didn't have the language. They didn't have the words. Yeah. So tough, I wanted conversation to have no matter what. Yeah, it's tough. Right. And so I wanted to give that language to families so that they could tell the children in their care themselves why, um, why this is happening. So the story starts out with him, um, Sullivan, suddenly being moved to grandma's house because a lot of times it just happens in the middle of the night. It's like, you're going, you're, you know, grab a few things and, and that's it. And everything gets left behind and you don't know what's going on. And so I wanted the book to be a resource, a tool to help explain to a child why they're they're living with their grandparents, but also in in the story incorporated like mindfulness skills and coping strategies for the child. Um, so the book is really for the grandparent and the grandchild. And when I get notes and messages from people who've read it, it just <laughs> burst into tears almost immediately every time because they will reach out to me, grandparents, and say, "How did you know?" how did you know that this is exactly what's happening in my family? And this book changed 
our lives. And now we call ourselves a grand family and we'd never heard that word before. And now we feel proud about who we are. And, you know, like all these, I'm getting, I'm getting the chills up. And and so I, I just, it's a big piece of my heart out in the world. And um, it's, it's just a a tool, a resource and a story, a beautiful story with great illustrations. Um, I'll show you, I can show you a little bit. Uh, My favorite one is um, grandma and, uh, and and Sullivan have a special moment and they're kind of like they're rubbing their little koala noses together and um it was also important that I didn't make the story a happy necessarily a happy tied up with a bow uh ending because a lot of the books I read would be like oh this this hard thing happened and then and then you were reunified and life was great and and so I didn't leave like that at the end I left it open-ended like we don't know what's going to happen Sullivan but I'm always going to be here for you and um and so I think that's valuable too to families to not have like oh and then everything was even if it's a kid's book you can't sugarcoat the experience no so Thank you for asking. Oh. And, and yes, shameless plug to my book, but it's really is like something that's so special. It's not just a book to me. It's not just a sale to me. Like it's, it's um, it, it could really help a child uh, get through a hard time. That's the uh, most important thing. So it sounds like it already has helped a ton of kids. Do you have any, <laughs> any, any thoughts for, uh, is there a sequel for Sullivan or now the other book ideas that you're I have several. Yes, um, I do have several. I've been asked, I, you know, a lot of people say, do you have something like this for teens? Um, like a, a teen level book um, is something that, you know, would, would help a teen. And so I'm, I'm percolating on some additional ideas, but yeah, I have, I have some ideas for a sequel and, um, and then a couple of other books that are completely different. So yeah, I'd like to keep doing that. Well, if you want to announce uh, the release of those books, uh, feel free to do it on this podcast. We'd love to have you on again. Thank you. I would love that. You guys are great. And it's nice to talk to some men in the children's mental health space. Like, I don't get that opportunity that often. (laughs) There's a few dudes. You don't know how valuable that is. It really is to have, you know, to have that perspective and and, um, to have more men in the the children's mental health field. It's just a huge need. So thank you, guys. Here's another thing that I I want to get your take on that I see in the child kind of mental health field, especially when it comes to trauma. So it feels like we categorize kids into like trauma kids and then behavior kids. Have you ever heard this phrase? Like that's just a behavior and that's trauma. I hear it all the time in like the residential world and particularly sometimes with court involved youth. and And I see it sometimes drawing like even on like diagnoses things, if somebody's got an oppositional defiant disorder or conduct disorder, it means that they're this. If they have PTSD or anxiety, it means that they're this. And all of these mm. kids' stories are like the exact same. So I'm curious, you know, can you speak to male and female or boy and girl difference differences in reaction to trauma? Obviously, these are like we're, we're talking broad strokes. We're not talking about every, everybody's unique, but there are probably some broad stroke differences in how that shows up. Um, as we, you know, we've got we got 70 young adolescent males who are, are in our treatment facility today who have been through sexual trauma, emotional trauma, neglect, um, all the things. And it manifests as I am pissed at the world. It doesn't manifest yeah. as self-harm. It doesn't manifest as withdrawn. It manifests as I'm going to go rip and run. I'm going to, I'm going <laughs> to run away anytime I can. I'm going to do anything to feel good. You know, 
Can you just talk a little bit about that? Because then I think sometimes we end up treating those things different because the behaviors manifest and the behaviors that manifest in the less uh, empathetic, some of these are less easy to empathize with. So we come right. up with, with the hammer. But. Yeah, no, 100%. And I think what you're describing is the difference between externalizing your behavior, which is that sort of outward, I'm going to destroy the world versus the internalizing the behavior. So I'm going to, I'm going to hurt myself. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, punish myself sort of. Um, And so I think that there is some, you know, differences in how that plays out across the two different genders. Um, And, you know, speaking generally, and I'm not, you know, trying to (laughs) stereotype any things, but yes, we do tend to see um, women and girls who internalize more, right. They self-harm more, but maybe they um, with eating disorders and, um, cutting and, and, and behaviors of that nature. And then, um, and then the boys and men, they tend to act out, right. They tend to hurt other people and sort of externalize their experiences. And I think, um, I think there is something to that, to what, to what you're saying. And I don't know if I have an answer for exactly why that happens. Um, but it is like a curious thing to, I would love to see some recent, you know, a research study on that. Um, because you're right. It's not as, um, I think when you're harming yourself, people have that empathy, right? It's like, we need to get you help. And, um, but when you, when you're harming other people, it's like, no, now we need to punish you. And, um, while I do think we need to stop the behavior, I think that sometimes we go too far. Like we were talking about earlier with the punishment part, and we're not thinking about how do we therapeutically support this person to, to prevent the behaviors. We're just, we just drop the hammer really hard thinking like that's going to work. And it's like, no, you're just traumatizing the person more. Um, so yeah, I think there, there is a, there's a shift that needs to happen in people's perspectives where, um, they see these outward externalized behaviors also as a trauma response. They're not just bad people or bad kids or, um, you know, beyond repair beyond you know beyond healing like these people can heal too they just need they need more support a young man in our um, program a few weeks ago do some damage to the bill and, I, and i've been doing this for a while and it was the most damage i'd ever seen done to a program in my career so on that in that moment me finding empathy took me a second because I was, I was i was not thrilled about what happened um but then within that that same day i think i asked one of my team members hey send me this kid's give me a summary of his life. Like, just give me the, you know, I don't want to read 40 different assessments, but give me the chrono, you know, chronology of his life. And man, that thing just wrecked me. It, a, it was super predictable. Actually, I think I told you, Mike, I'm like, Mike, I bet you and I could probably write this story. Like right. how, how a young person comes to be that. It's actually not that hard. Like the, it's, it's pretty clear, but it's just something about reading it and, and reading again, just multiple placement, you know, disruptions. He's been in the system forever, all kinds of abuse, um, entire, you know, chunks of his life that are just kind of blacked out that he probably can't remember or doesn't want to. And, you know, you just think, I'm amazed this kid was functioning as well as he was. It just completely changes your perspective. Again, still not thrilled about how that manifested, but, you know, that kid is going to, unfortunately, I think, be navigated through our system with a kind of a scarlet letter of conduct criminal like this kind of thing and um 
Although again, he needs, there needs to be limits and boundaries and there needs to be natural consequences for stuff. He can't be destructive forever and have, be, have a successful life, but it's all coming from pain. Like at, at a minimum, I think we all just got to rec recognize all this stuff comes from pain. And to say that doesn't mean that we're condoning it. And to say that doesn't mean it's your get out of, you know, theoretical jail free card forever, but we can still hold on to that. They're like, Hey, that sucked. But man, that was a pain based right. thing. Clearly. Yeah. I always say no child ever wakes up and it's their goal to enter a psychiatric residential treatment facility or a wilderness program for juvenile justice involved kids. It's not on their radar. It's not something they aspire to be. Um, and that's how I can, you know, strangely enough, this is going to sound really out of left field, but finding empathy or sympathy for kids in our care or kids who come into our treatment facility like that's pretty easy for me to do. Um, but I, you know, I think about the, the millionaire athlete at 21 who's handed like $20 million and people are, their, mo their minds are blown when that kid, that 21 year old gets into trouble. I have like this, <laughs> like I always put myself in those shoes. I say to myself, when I was 21, if you handed me 30 mil, I'd probably be in a lot more trouble than that young man. And then I also think like, about like if you handed you thirty dollars when you were twenty-one, right? We, <laughs> <laughs> and I, and I, I always think about the kids that we're working with. I you know I'm I'm fortunate enough that I was raised in a very supportive, nurturing environment. If you drop me into some of the shoes that the kids were wearing, you know, the kids that we're serving, I don't think I'm even getting to New Hope at some point in time. So, I think perspective is a huge piece of it's a huge piece of what keeps me doing what I'm doing. I'll just speak from the heart. It keeps me doing what I'm doing, right? That if I can understand where th these individuals are coming from and what they've endured, it makes me get up every day with an energy and enthusiasm to, to do them right. Yeah, I agree. Um, two things. I'm going to give you guys an, a homework assignment, which is if you haven't uh, seen uh, it already, maybe uh, you have. <laughs> have you ever seen um, the... It's a very short documentary. You can find it on YouTube. Step Inside the Circle by Fritzy Horseman. Have you ever heard of Fritzy Horseman? I have not. You have to watch this, this video. I think they have it in like a seven minute clip, but um, it's called Step Inside the Circle by Fritzy Horseman. She goes to a... I forget the word it's called, but like a high lockdown prison. I'm not. I'm not doing it any justice. Security, but you know what I mean. Kind of high security and like lockdown prison. Matt's familiar with those terms. <laughs> and she goes in and she does this activity with the men and with the with the people who were there um, to help show them that all of their trauma is is what led them to this point. And it's just you, there won't be a dry eye in the room. Um, so I, if you're looking for inspiration. Um, and hope that um, that we can help these young people. Um, I encourage you to watch that. And then the other thing, Mike, that you kind of mentioned is this family privilege, right? That we might be coming from. I'm not sure of everyone in the room, but um, you know, like we had the family, we had that, we had a support system. Where would we be without that? You know, where would we have? Where would we have ended up without a, a support system, without a family to love us unconditionally, permanently? Um, and and you take that away from anyone and they're going to look pretty dysfunctional and pretty illogical and pretty angry and pretty, you know, violent and, and all of those things. Um, so I think, yeah.
I think there's gonna be some parents that listen to this podcast. Yeah. And and again, we're really trying to speak to folks who are not inside our space. You know, I think there's gonna be people inside our space that listen, but hopefully a lot of just what I would call just typical people who don't know all of our acronyms and um and don't know all this <laughs> business that we talk about. So you know, sometimes I think we shoot over people's heads. But so if you're just a parent, if you speak to a parent whose kid comes to them and discloses that they experienced a trauma recently, what do you do as a typical parent who's not connected to all of these like services or mental health lingo? Just like, what do you do as a parent? Yeah. Um, well, the first thing is, is to believe them. I, and I hate that I have to say that, but you know, it is a natural instinct for a parent to want want to turn away from hearing that anything might have harmed their child. And so sometimes we can deny or invalidate those experiences. Mm -hmm. um, so I encourage you, I would encourage the parents to a believe them because children very infrequently lie about these types of things. It's not, it's in the research bears that out time and time again, that, that children typically do not lie about what's happened to them. Um, it does happen. And, you know, there is a small set of people who will for different reasons. Um, but typically they are telling the truth. And um, so that would be the first step. And then the second step is, is, is to, to listen, you know, to really um, listen with, with all of your strength and ability and, and tell them, I am here for you. Um, I actually have a model, it's called the cares model. And um, it's, it's really for anyone, but for families, it talks about how, um, you know, well, it's more so for professionals. So like the first step is consent, like make sure before you get in someone's close space, before you go over and touch them or put an arm around them or anything that you um, you've asked them, is it okay if I sit down next to you? Is it okay if I come close to you? Because sometimes with children with trauma that can just set them off right there into a, into a defensive uh, state and into a, tra a trauma activation. So um, consent is the first step. And then after that, it's like accepting their feelings. So just accept their sadness. Don't try to take it away. Don't try to fix it. Don't try to tell them, oh, well, let's, let's go get ice cream later and make it all better. Like, don't try to distract them. Let's accept that this is really scary, sad, hard, you know, whatever word is appropriate um, and reflect that to them. So it's, it sounds like that was really scary for you and just stop. And just when you do that, they will then begin to share more. And so that the next step is that reflection. And then, um, and then the, the, you know, providing the empathy and the compassion for, for what they experienced, but then also, um, you know, depending on the level of it. So like, this is more, so less, um, maybe you share something you went through you know, when you were a child that was similar um, to show them that they're not alone. Um, and it might not be the exact same thing, um, but sharing something once they've calmed down and once they've expressed themselves fully, you don't want to, you know, jump in and start unloading your stuff or anything, but showing them that like mom or dad has also been through some hard things. Cause I think children tend to think we're like, you know, up on this pedestal, even if they don't act like that, they really do look up to us as like untouchable, never had a hard day, never mm -hmm. been, you know, upset, never made a mistake. Like they really do have us on that pedestal. And so if you can kind of reveal something hard you went through, um, that, uh, that's a game changer for, for children it helps them see they're not alone, but it also helps them, um, 
not feel so shameful for mm. whatever it might be. So those are kind of some of my tips. All right. So Beth, in closing, this being a podcast called Stuff That Matters, we're going to give you a chance now to, I guess, recap either what we discussed uh, here today or just overall your message and the work that you've done. This could be, you know, bullet points, really key things you want to hammer home. Uh, just in closing for you, what is the stuff that really matters? So I'm going to go, I'm going to go big on you here. Okay. Uh, this stuff Please. that really matters Please. with childhood trauma is yes. looking at our own trauma, looking at our trauma. You can't help somebody who has trauma if you're blind and to your own trauma and to your own emotional experiences. And in fact, your trauma is going to come activated when you're with a child with trauma because maybe they remind you of yourself at that age. Maybe they, um, you know, for me, like it was uh, my child crying was really activating for me because um, I felt it, it brought up a lot of helpless feelings in me. Mm-hmm. And so your children and the children you work with can activate your own stuff. And so if I had one message, it would be, let's, let's not focus just on the children, right. And helping the children, but let's start looking at our own lives and our own pain and start to heal and process through some of our own pain, because that will just make us even better and and stronger for the children we're trying to support. So it's, it's not just about what happened to them, but it's, it's about what has happened to us. Fantastic. Wow. (laughs) Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for being here. Yeah. It was a pleasure. I hope that we can do this again. I really do. Thank you for having me today. It was, yes. it was a real honor. Uh, absolutely. And one, one last plug for the book too. You can find it on Amazon, <laughs> Grand Family for Sullivan, uh, Kindle and the soft copy as well, the paper, paperback copy. Yeah, paperback on Amazon. And then if, if you reach out to me directly, I have um, hard copies, like hardback copies that I sign and mail to people. And you can reach nice. me at Beth at bethtyson.com. I have lots of resources and webinars and blog articles on childhood trauma. Mm -hmm. um, If you want to learn more at my website. Awesome. Awesome. Fantastic. Beth, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I feel like we're friends now. We really, uh, I feel like we really covered a lot of ground today. So I hope we can do it We sure did. Back to the park. (laughs) 